This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we have a special return guest to the podcast today. His name is Greg Hurwitz. So he is a novelist, screenwriter, and comic book writer, and he is the number one New York Times bestselling author of over 20 different thrillers, including his wildly popular Orphan X series. And we're talking to him today about his newest title in that series, and that is Lone Wolf. That is the ninth out of, you know, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about uh, how many that's going to be before it's all said and done. But this is a, a very interesting guy to talk to because he and I connected last year with the last novel in the Orphan X series. And, you know, he and I hit it off, became good buddies. And the funny thing about last year's interview is I prepare all my interviews fairly, uh, fairly much the same way. I read the books uh, that the people are releasing or watch the documentaries that they're putting out or whatever the thing is. And then I prepare my questions accordingly. And I prepare them as if the person's just going to straight up answer them, like answer this one. And then I go right into my next one, right into my next one. So I can still kind of create a narrative arc to the conversation. But I remember last year getting to the end of the conversation, having so much fun talking with him and then looking at my notes and being like, I didn't even get to like a quarter of the questions I wanted to ask him. And so this time around, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do like one fourth the preparation I did last time. And then we still didn't get to like half the questions from this time because every time he and I talk, whether it's on this podcast or in person, we kind of delve into all these different philosophical areas. And so for some of you in my audience, there's going to be things uh, that you hear today in this conversation where you're like, well, I didn't, why didn't Kyle ask about this? And why didn't Kyle press here or press there? The thing is, is when he and I talk online or offline on the show or not on the show, he and I are just connecting to try to get a deeper level of understanding each other, but also a deeper level of the human condition. And really this conversation, I guess you could say centered around the quest for human flourishing. If I could just, you know, come up with something off the top of my head, because a lot of it kind of bends towards that because we talk about, you know, what it takes to keep a thriller series exciting whenever you're you know nine books in how do you kind of keep the storyline going but then we talk about some different themes from the book because there's a theme in the new book where it's very heavy on the father-son dynamic but specifically deadbeat dads absent fathers you know deadbeat absent fathers that are okay with that and they kind of lean into it deadbeat absent fathers that aren't okay with it but they don't really know another way we also talk about if there's a culminating culminating event coming for uh, evan in the orphan x series and so we get into that but then we talk a lot about his relationship with jordan peterson and specifically the work that he did with jordan on the exodus series that was put out by daily wire just an absolutely fantastic series it was jordan peterson Greg Hurwitz and then others like Oz Guinness and Jonathan Pajo and Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro and James Orr and Stephen Blackwood and others. And they were getting around diving as far into the Exodus stories as you could possibly go and coming at it from a myriad of different circum like places. So, you know, he's more on, he was raised in kind of a secular Jewish household, but then went to Jesuit school and high school. And so he talks a little bit about that, but then you have guys like, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson, who's on his own faith journey, but then you had Christian theologians from Cambridge, and then you had, you know, Dennis Prager and uh, Ben Shapiro, who are, are Jewish guys, and it was just very interesting to hear him talk about that experience, 
but specifically talk about how it's going to affect him and how it's affected him up to this point and what it's going to look like moving forward. Because, spoiler alert, they are going to be doing another series of biblical lectures, uh, another seminar of sorts before too long. I haven't got them to, you know, give me the, the skinny on what the book of the Bible is going to be or not. But again, as always, I really, really enjoy my time with Greg Hurwitz. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Greg Hurwitz, you are back for your return appearance. That means I didn't scare you off the first time. Do I need to try harder this time? Is that what we're going for? I hope so. It's called the undaunted life, man. It's not called the meek life. That's right. So I'll see what I can do to make things get weird. But before we get too weird, I do need to make sure that we make your publisher happy because of all the things that you are, probably the biggest thing you are is a best-selling prolific author. And so you've written you know, a couple of dozen best-selling thrillers at this point, but you got a new one out now if people are listening to this on time. And that is novel number nine in your uh, Orphan X series, and this one's called Lone Wolf. I just finished listening to the audio a couple of weeks ago. And so the, the thing is, is as I've told you before, I don't really consume a lot of fiction. I do a lot of nonfiction. And so I'm very, very picky. So it's basically Greg Hurwitz, Jack Carr, and uh, I'm trying to think of somebody else. Like the, those are the ones that I will expose myself to. And, and Dostoevsky, uh, I think that creates <laughs> that, that completes the troika. Yeah, that that certainly like covers all my bases. Would it? And yeah, Stephen Pressfield. Go. I'll throw Stephen Pressfield in there as okay, well. Okay. But I, I guess my that's question great for, company. Yeah, that that's pretty good company for sure. But I guess my question from the very beginning for you is, as an author, the the main you know protagonist of the series is Evan. How do you keep the 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 character fresh? for you so that you can continue putting him in these different environments to where he stays fresh for the audience. Like how do you, how do you play with that in your brain? It's so weird. I answer this so much differently than I would have earlier in my career. Something really weird happened for me with Orphan X. Um, and I think part of this is that I started writing it when I was on the cusp of turning 40 and 40 was like, was a bitch for me, man. Like mm. for some reason, I just turned 50 and 50 was great for some reason, but 40 was really tough. And I think I always write, there's a quotation from Joan Didion. She says, I write. So I know what I think. Mm. It's a wonderful quotation. And I think part of it was when I turned 40, I was having this moment where, you know, while I certainly had a great deal to be grateful for, I was like, is this just what I do again? Like I write X more books and comics and, I mean, not that that sounds terrible, but it was, there's that feeling sometimes of, is this all there is? And one of the things that I realized was that the rules by which I govern the first part of my life, um, I didn't want to just have them repeated again. I wanted to break them apart and figure something else out. And so it's really interesting that Orphan X, it's about a government assassin. He's got his 10 assassins commandments. Uh, the most prominent one is how you do anything is how you do everything. Um, and that's been, you know, a lot of reach, but there are these very rigid rules about operational perfection as an assassin, but I decided to start the series and this isn't something that was a conscious connection, not at the point that he's training to be the assassin or when he's orphan X killing people overseas in ways where the U S government can't go. Cause we don't have a footprint or when he flees the program and becomes the nowhere man, he becomes an assassin for people who are in desperate need, who have nowhere else to turn. His number is one eight five five two nowhere, and you can call the number. So he does these missions where people call him, and he goes and helps them if they're being terrorized by somebody else. I chose to start the series right at the point when a mission comes up where he has to break all ten of his commandments and figure out new rules for what govern his life. 
And so as much as I wasn't aware of this connection consciously until I'd written it, a great deal of what the books are about are when we fragment um, our rules, our commandments, our code, and have to reassemble them in some way that is uh, is more mature or has more meaning or is more robust. Um, and the thing that's hardest to let go of, they're not the obvious idiosyncrasies. Um, let's say you're a, you're too heavy a drinker. Let's say you have a temper. There's things that we know get in our way. The hardest things to let go of are some of the habits that we might have as striving young men or striving young women that actually benefited us enormously. Defense mechanisms that no longer serve their purpose. So here's Evan, who's the top assassin in the world. And in a way, looking back, I think of the series is he almost realizes he's this archetypal hero of fiction. He realizes he's Pinocchio, but he wants to be a real boy. But for him to let go of these things, they've given him everything. They've given him his safety, his security, his life, his code. And those are the things when we have to let go of that become really difficult. And so to be honest with you, this series is the first time that my own life sort of caught up to the fiction that I'm writing where like Evan's learning things slightly ahead of me or I'm slightly ahead of him because a lot of the book is me being very aware of where I am and what I'm letting go of and what I'm trying to strive imperfectly towards. Hey guys, real quick. Here recently, one of my family members was telling me about how they partnered with another family and they bought some beef from this local cattle producer. And when they got the beef, it was unbelievably terrible. And I can tell you this from experience because they made me some beef ribs from that animal and they were terrible. And they even gave me some steaks and some ground and it was basically inedible. I, like I couldn't believe how bad it was. And they ended up finding out that the person killed an old bull or something like that. And just the meat was old and tough and awful. And that's just what happens when you don't have a quality cattle operation that you can trust to give you a quality beef product on the back end. And that's, guys, why I want to introduce you to the official beef delivery partner of Undaunted Life, my friends at Primal Beef. So Primal Beef is a cattle operation owned and operated by Sean Glass. He's a retired Navy SEAL that has partnered with Jocko Willing to launch Primal Beef. So. What makes Primal Beef different from some of these other cattle operations where you're going to end up getting bad beef? This operation is all American Black Angus cattle. The beef comes from one farm, and that's in Virginia Shenandoah Valley. The beef is all natural, no hormones ever, no mRNA ever, no vaccines ever. And after slaughter, this is a big deal. The beef is dry aged, and then it's hand cut by artisan butchers and then flash frozen to ensure that it maintains tenderness, marbling, and flavor. And here's another great thing about it. For every box sold, Primal Beef donates meat directly to a member of America's Special Operations Forces through the C4 Foundation. So you can take pride in knowing that your purchase will help to put literal food on the table for America's finest warriors. If you're not salivating yet, it's probably because you're a communist. Don't be a communist. Try Primal Beef out today by going to www.primalbeef.com. That's primalbeef.com. Use the promo code Kyle, that's my first name, to get 10% off of your order. The great thing about that promo code is you can stack that on other deals as well and get all this money off. Again, that's primalbeef.com, promo code Kyle, that's K-Y-L-E, to get 10% off your order. Okay, so uh, I don't want to get into to any spoilers, so I'll be as as vague as possible. But one of the themes of Lone Wolf, uh, I guess you could say, is just the interplay and potential conflicts of a father-son relationship. Uh, that's a pretty vague way of saying it. But uh, even specifically, deadbeat dads or absent fathers, whether that's absent physically or mentally or both. Um, and, you know, one of the fathers in Lone Wolf is, is a deadbeat and uh, apparently likes it that way. 
which is kind of its own brand of nasty, I think. Like a guy that knows he's kind of like sludgy and terrible, but has kind of like leaned into it. Um, and then there's another father in Lone Wolf that's uh, a deadbeat, but really doesn't want to be. And so you you kind of have these these uh, dueling deadbeats. One guy's just like embrace it. And one guy is almost like he's on the pathway to embracing that as his identity. Um, I, and perhaps I'm, I'm painting with too broad a brush here, but do you feel like that interplay of those two types of fathers has a direct, uh, I guess, reflection on things that you've experienced, or is that just something that you feel like the, the character needed? God, that's a great question, Kyle. Um, boy, that's interesting. Um, so I don't think it's a spoiler to say, so Evan is an orphan by name, right? That's the code by which he lives. That's the program that trained him. He's orphan X. It's very fortunate he didn't wind up being like orphan W if he'd been a few later in the alphabet, because that, you know, would it would have been embarrassing for us. So we're fortunate in that regard. But he had a wonderful father figure. Um, he never knew his parents to begin with in Jack John's. Um, and Jack Johns was the handler. He's a former CIA station agent who raised him. And Jack tells him very early in the series, and it's repeated in every book. This series, you can come in on any book and I reset. He says, when he's 12 years old, he takes Evan out of a foster home and he's the littlest, scrappiest kid. No worth. Jack's the first person to treat him like he's got any worth. And he chooses him over everybody else because of his heart. The smallest kid, he gets knocked down the most times on the playground. And Jack tells him that also means you get up the most times. And at, at age of 12, Jack tells him the hard part isn't turning you into a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And so Jack's the author of this horrible profession where he becomes an assassin, but he makes sure his moral compass is intact. And so in the beginning of Lone Wolf, one of the things that we find is that Evan gets a notice that he thinks he's located the man who purports to be his father. And this is sort of shocking for us and for him. We've never thought of this. And the book opens in, in a regard of him confronting this. And we don't really know what happens. We don't, I don't want to get into that, but it's a confrontation. And the way that you phrase it's very interesting because, you know, the opposite of, of love, of connection, of care, isn't hate, it's apathy. Yeah. Right. And so, and we talk about the banality of evil and right. We have a lot of phrases of different ways, you know, that, that this, sort of parses through the the moral universe. And so a lot of this is about a, a man who's given up his commandments. He's given up his bearings. And where do you find them again if you are an orphan? Now, you asked me about this in my personal life. I, I have a wonderful uh, dad. I had a great dad. He's like, um, I think that we all come equipped with uh, different problems, genetic, environmental, experiential. Um, you know, I certainly have a host of them, but having a, a dad who was a template for me was not one of them. Um, but I do think in a lot of regards, as we all move towards, especially a definition of ourselves through, and if it hasn't hit you early, it'll certainly hit you in middle age, mm. where we're taking apart the rules and the codes and the stories that we've lived by. We reach for other authority figures to anchor ourselves and to make our own until there's a moment. I had a friend just visit me whose father just passed away, who he was so close with his dad. I mean, like it was his best friend all the way through. They studied military history together, hikes, endless conversations. 
And he said he had this realization in the back of his head where he's like, I always knew I had some sort of safety net that my dad was around. And then he had this realization that he's now the safety net for the entire family, the siblings, the nieces, the nephews, he's the patriarchy. And ideally, no matter where we come from uh, and no matter what influences we have in our life, that's in a certain way what we're training for, right? We're training to be the head of a family and a community in a way that is um, that is graceful, in a way that we've we've learned to, to, to swing our sword sufficiently that we can keep it holstered, right, and be transformative. And so that's a process we all have, whether that's intellectually, whether it's creatively. You know, I, I have certain differences uh, in the family and environment that I grew up in, my influences, my family, my education. And we're seeking different things, you know, and we're seeking different points of contact that pull us closer to what our moorings might be. Um, and so, you know, the, the personal question is one thing, but intellectually and creatively, um, I have had to reach for different points of contact and different points of anchoring uh, in order to figure out what's the, what's the, you know, as I continue to strive imperfectly towards the most fulfilled version of myself, right? So as we stumble forward, we look for different moorings and anchors. And if we can get some of that right and reconstitute ourselves in a way that's the purest version of ourselves, then maybe we have a chance to be that for other people. When I think one thing that is uh, almost implicit in what you described, it's it's as your, your good buddy Jordan Peterson says, you want to be the guy at your father's funeral that everybody can anchor themselves to. And so, you know, it's interesting that you point out a friend that just came by that just lost their father. But what I feel like is, unfortunately, there are a lot of adult men that are not actually men. They're just like, boys that can shave. Uh, they've ascended to a certain age, but not a certain level of maturity. And then if their father or if the patriarch of the family goes the way, and now the rest of the family is default looking to them, they don't have a code. They don't have a, a life of resilience behind them to substantiate their claim to the role of patriarch in their family. And yet that is what it says on their family business card. And so uh, I, I will say for me, I've got two mm. sons that are, they're three and one. And so all of my failings, all of my issues, all of my everything are front and center, especially if I see it mirrored in my children, right? Negative and positive. And so for me, it's very important to not only raise them in a positive environment where they see me loving their mother and, you know, taking care of people that need to be cared for and defending people that need to be defended. But at the same time, I can't hand them down my wisdom in my head that I never, never share with them. I can't hand them down my muscular ability. I can't hand them down my cardio. I can only hand them nuggets of the wisdom that has been given to me that they can then build off of. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely. I mean, one of the things you talk about is for all of us who are parents, it's so funny. Um, it's a very humbling experience, right? Being a parent is kind of like writing a novel. Uh, I remember one time there was a screenwriter who wanted to meet and have lunch. It was early in Hollywood. I was 23 and I sat down with him. And he, I think was more successful than me on the screenplay front. He said, I want to talk to you about a novel. I don't do anything until I know that I can do it perfectly and won't make any mistakes. Um, so I want to know all the rules of writing a novel. And I was like, buddy, you're out of luck. The only way to write a novel is to get into it and screw it up constantly. I mean, mm -hmm. and parenting 
is a version of that where you go in with your highest self. I, I, I think ideally most of us want to, you clearly did, but you know, what you say that's so interesting is when we see our flaws reflected in our children, there's a choice. It's a very stark choice. And a lot of times it has to do with, are we going to chisel away at the rock of our denial over something we're seeing in our kid that might be a reflection in our own heart mm. to face and confront that in ourselves to then show the wisest approach for our kid in order that they can move past that. And I will tell you as a parent time and time again, if I've been stuck in something that's a frustration or resentment or something with one of my, with one of my kids, often there's something for me to go, you know what? I never figured this out all the way in my own life. I covered it. I covered it. I faked it. I hummed along. And this is when, when we talk about generational trauma, it sounds very like voodoo-y, mm -hmm. right? But we have a choice in everything that we do with our interactions to figure out, you know, um, and when I've seen, let's say one of my kids struggling with something, if I stop and there's some way I'm engaging with it, maybe it's, Maybe it's something I've diminished and hidden in myself. It's down to 5% of me that I've covered through willful blindness and they're still writing it. If I chisel that 5% away and can open up to the vulnerability of admitting that in myself, mm. then I can engage with them in a way that's transformational and guide them out of it as an adult. And I think that's one of the things that's, that's like the beautiful sacrificial nature of parental love or, or any kind of love, a good friend, you know, my... My my dad always says a good friend holds up a mirror. Um, oh yeah. So much of this is about you know if if you're frustrated with one of your kids, if you're aggravated, if you're resentful, right? There's a lot of emotions we don't give ourselves as much room to discuss around kids. A lot of times, if you go inside and you can clear it, you know it's pretty amazing. And by the way, that that dovetails quite nicely with your first question, which is what are the codes that benefited us? right in the first part of our life. And I'll tell you when I was first married, though this was this was an earlier realization. You know, when I was young, no one in my family went into a creative field, Hollywood, writing any of this. And I had a very intense uh you'll relate to this Kyle cuz discipline, meticulous, mm. don't knock on my door, don't call me, don't bug me during the day. I kind of felt like I had to kick everyone over to clear this time out. Um and some of that stems from advice, in fact, that Jordan gave me, I was still in college when I started my first book. And he said, make your writing time sacrosanct if you don't, mm -hmm. no one else will. Right. And so I did, you know, being a writer in a lot of ways, there's a, there's a, a self-centeredness like being an athlete, right? Why are you training all morning when there's other stuff to do? You have to, you have to elevate day 17 of 365 mm -hmm. of finishing a novel to being the most important thing that day or else go to a movie or pick up your dry cleaning or clean your kitchen. You just have to make it thus. But I think part of it was I had made it thus, but without, without grace, let's say, um, mm. or gentleness. Cause I was just alone and who cares, right? It was me, my friends, firm boundaries. That's an example of maybe something that doesn't work when you, when you have kids and you start to realize that this armoring armor is great because it protects you, but it also limits your flexibility. And I still remember when my younger daughter was born, I could never, I never really got babies as a guy until yeah. I had one. Like other, yeah. I love kids. I adore kids, man. Like two to three on, I'm in. 
Um, but babies, I'm always like, they all look like Winston Churchill or WC Fields. They just sort of like cry and shit. Like I didn't get it. And I kind of even prepped my wife. I was like, look, you know, I just want you to know I'm going to be spending, you know, early days. I'm not interested. I was like smitten with this baby, right? The hormonal mm-hmm. thing hits and you're, it's amazing. But I remember I would work in my office and my kid, if she was crying, being fussy, being hungry, no problem. There was a cry I knew and I never believed people when they said, oh, the cries mean different things. I thought, are you crazy? Like all they mean is like get in, get an insulated office door. But if she hurt herself and had that one cry, I'd be yeah. out of my office downstairs. And it was like, you know what? Get back up and figure out. I had a lot of pretentious, like when I'm in my office, I'm spinning these plates and I'm so important. I'm such an artist. And if I'm disrupted, they fall and like, forget all that. Your baby's hurt. You go comfort that baby. And then you figure it out. And that's an example of of these ways that our codes need to break up and reform or else we just move through life rigidly and brittly and things that are brittle shatter. Well, and one thing you you mentioned earlier is we have this tendency to fake it. Like we will fake it uh, and we will certainly fake it for a long time if we don't have friends that will hold up a mirror to us. And that's why I encourage guys all the time, you need foxhole buddies. You don't need golfing buddies. You need 3 a.m. friends. You don't need 6 p.m. friends. You need those guys that are going to like, you know, if you say something off color to your wife at dinner and you embarrass her and you just move on with the conversation, that's the guy that's going to grab you by your shirt in the parking lot and be like, bro, I know you love her. I know you didn't mean to hurt her, but you did and you're not going to do that again. You need guys like that in your life, but we will insulate ourselves. uh, Speaking of insulation, we will insulate ourselves from those types of guys, but it's because of our uh, inability to be humble. It's because of our inability to get our emotions and our ego in check. And also I I think one of the worst types of fathers. So we've talked about, you know, absentee fathers and, you know, deadbeat dads and deadbeat dads that don't want to be deadbeat dads, but they just can't help themselves. So they're just kind of F ups, but it's also the do as I say, not as I do father. Because kids do understand language. Obviously, you're, you are a linguist. You are a professional linguist. P- kids do understand words and how they attach themselves and make sentences and then paragraphs and then philosophies and tomes, right? But what a kid sees you doing is so much easier for them to emulate because when I do see positive and negative things in my three-year-old and one-year-old right now, it's not because I taught them how to do it verbally. It's because they watched dad, dad do it. And now they're going to do it. And so when you have that do as I say, and not as I do father, the, the overweight father, the father that doesn't take his job very seriously, doesn't take anything very seriously other than maybe video games and fantasy football. It's kind of hard for the kid to be like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and follow that advice because it's like, well, dad's not doing, why should I? Yes. And you know, you're, you're talking about the different friends we need to have around us. And I think one of the most important things is it's not just that we're faking it in some ways. The real danger I think is that when we fake it, do we start to believe the whisper of our own lie? Right. Yeah. Right. And shame's a terrible thing, right? It's terrible mm-hmm. for, for men in, in certain ways that perhaps is different from women though, though boy, women contend with it greatly. Um, but you know, what happens a lot of times if you're faking it is there's a real temptation towards kind of um, self-deception, right? I fake this so well, this is who I am and I'm not going to see it. And the willingness to be open to shame um, and the willingness to know that you're strong enough to have something exposed to the sterilizing light of day is, is essential. You know, the point that you make 
A, about friends, absolutely. I mean, I have I have one of the ways that I think I'm perhaps the, the well, I, I just feel very blessed in my community. But my friends are a fairly raucous bunch of like, you know, almost everyone's like a tame savage in a way, you know, like mm. I don't, I don't trust people who are overly civilized. So, um, yeah. you know, one of the, um, descriptions, which I think I mentioned uh, last time we talked of orphan acts, one of the things I say is the OSS, which predated the CIA, their recruiting standard was a PhD. You could win a bar fight. Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot about having that toughness that let's say the front part of Orphan X's journey, right? But then knowing how to integrate and deal with that. What you're talking about with your kids, it's really interesting because um, it is what we do. You know, our prefrontal cortex can process two to three pieces of information at a time, whereas our visual field takes in 20,000 pieces of information. So if you've ever had one of those discussions of like, hey, I got all the words right. Right. Like, what are we arguing about? Right. Yeah. I said it. I said the apology. I told you what to do. Um, those things don't go in so well, especially to people who are more intuitive, higher EQ, uh, right. People who are more um, clear in their emotions initially. Right. Whereas men tend to switch like the shame to anger, resentment loop is a fast one often with men, right? Sure. And there's not that, what the Buddhists call that sacred space between feeling and action or emotion. And if there's a shame, anger reaction, we can think we're grown up if we're calm and we say all the words right, but there's bite under it. And if you do it purely and with an open heart, like you're talking about with your kids, right? You're doing something with focus. You're doing your work with gratitude. You're engaging with them with a lesson, with the aim really for their highest good and moral, you know, development out of connection, out of love. I don't mean you're walking around like a Marcus Aurelius all the time, but sure. you know what I'm saying? If your lanes are open, if your mechanism's clear, there's a different sort of learning and emulation that gets imparted. And I think one of the things for me, you know, I don't speak a lot of, I don't speak any other languages. I'm fairly decent at English. And a lot of times I'll think if I get the words right, I got it right. And there's a lot of connection that goes beneath the words that goes all the way down that you have to line up. It's like lining up your spine for a tackle. You know, if you, if you have it wrong, you'll break your back. And so you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're aiming right and you're aligned right. And it takes a lot to move through um, the discipline of the day Right. And being tough where you need to be tough and, you know, for your job, being meticulous where you need to be meticulous and being gentle and soft in the ways that you need to with the right people who need it and firm enough. There's a lot of responsibility. And you're talking a lot about men and fathers. Right. And I think that um, um, I think one of the things that gets difficult or complicated in this age is there isn't a great um very clear cultural template for the kinds of toughness, for the kinds of um, firmness of purpose paired with grace, right? What we tend to find is an argument for overwhelming empathy or inclusion, let's say. And it's like, that's a very important value set. We want to welcome the outsider. We want to have empathy to people who are in pain, but it can't be the transcendent value of all things or else nothing functions. So where is the right place and where are the times that we reward that? And a lot of what, I, what I'm realizing that I'm writing in Orphan X, though I don't create from this place, but when you talk about there not being a code, mm 
I'm trying to create and show not just that code, but the process by which that code occurs. What's the process by which someone who says, look, I'm a badass, right? I'm, I'm, I'm Shane from a Western. I have my black and white rules, end of everything I'll write off onto the sunset. It's like Batman. I wrote Batman for two years for DC, right? Batman represents human perfection. What's the opposite of perfection in a weird way is intimacy. Once you're intimate, your life's messy, people are messy, emotions are messy, and they'll point out where you're messy. That's your friend who grabs you by the shirt collar and goes, dude, pay attention to your wife's eyes when you made the joke, right? Mm. That, that you referenced. And so I'm inadvertently writing, I think in some ways, a book about the process by which that code and awareness can occur. Um, but saying it that way, what's interesting is that's a more uh, intellectual version of it. And it doesn't come intellectual. Like when I'm writing, all I'm thinking about is Evan and Tommy Stojak and Josephine Morales and assassins and the scenes and the people I'm writing about and what they're dealing with. I'm not thinking of it in some abstract way that I'm trying to like create a certain mythology, but guess what? Those are all the things that are going on in my lizard brain, right? And in my spinal cord. And so that's, what's coming out on the page. And it's likely that that's a lot of what's going on in all of our lizard brains. Um, if we're paying attention either in, in on the way up or on the way down. When you mentioned Shane, that's my favorite Western, uh, that I've ever read. And there's an undercurrent and guys, if you haven't read Shane yet, it, it's a quick read. It, it's, 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 you have to read it. If, if you're an adult male, there's an undercurrent in that novel of this tension between, um, what true righteous manhood is because we know what it's not. We know it's not the ardent pacifist and we know it's not the machismo guy, right? The, you know, the, the, the hunting boots and the beef jerky and the whiskey and the chasing the women and all that. Like that's equally yeah, as yeah, add one more, please. It's also not the endless activist. After, sure. Yeah. The, the person that can tell you everything that is wrong about the way that you view the world and how you should pattern it after them because they've got some sort of Gnostic knowledge that has been revealed to them because standpoint epistemology or something that they learn from their, you know, psych 101 professor or something like that. And so the interesting thing about that is, okay, how do you fall in the middle to where you can lean to one side or the other when needed. So the other day at church, uh, there was a disruption at church and where I was in the church, I thought the disruption was a physical attack of some kind. And so I literally had a sandwich in my hand. I drop it and take off towards where that is. And I was prepared in that moment to use my body and what was on my body to take on a physical threat. Now go to the other side. I showed some anger in a different context and my three-year-old son was scared by dad's anger, right? And so I had to get down on one knee and get eyeball to eyeball with my son. And two minutes after I scared him to the point of tears, apologize to my three-year-old and ask him for forgiveness because of what dad, dad did and it wasn't appropriate. And how can a man vacillate between the two without becoming one or the other? And I think that's an important thing. And so I say all that to say, that's what I feel whenever I read the undercurrent of what's happening with Evan, 
because he's not mm. just the bloodthirsty killer, right? So if the goal was to not just turn him into assassin, but to keep him human, he's very much so human, so much so that his human part of his brain is haunting him as he's trying to go through and even the score for other people. I, at least that's my read of it. So, I mean, is that kind of the point in, in how you approach it? That's right. And and like the, the, the example you gave, which is a beautiful example, he's failing constantly. Like we all fail, yeah. right? It's... Um, so I have a couple observations about that. The first one is having eaten with you a couple times, I can't imagine anything that would ever make you drop a sandwich. That's the first thing because I, you know, hey, I, typically you can't get between me and my meal, but that was that was an exceptional moment. And did everything wind up okay in the church? Everything was fine. It was it was a medical emergency. You know, we were able to help help this, this man out and all that. But at the at the time, so, I thought it was going to be kinetic. That's that's. Uh, I was thinking about the example you gave with your son, you know, and people have studied this a lot. Um, what's important as we parent, what's as important, and I think even more important, it's not when we screw up. It's can we, can we reconnect, right? Because what you gave your son is something that's, that's actually quite beautiful, meaning if you lose your temper and then your reaction is one of two things, well, it's justified. I'm a dude. It's how guys are. We have a temper. Deal with it. And you know you're wrong because it sits uncomfortably in you, mm. right? That's number one. Um, number two is to have shame to come back to be little boy shameful, right? Overly apologetic in a way that isn't connected. But for you to have something and catch yourself and then – it is more important with kids how you make up than what the conflagration is. Obviously, mm -hmm. that doesn't apply to, to literal abuse, right? Right, right? But if you can show your kid that, that there's always time to have a decision to make up properly. Um, and one of the things I have in my head all the time, uh, William James, the famous psychologist, um, he has one of my favorite quotations, and this is in Orphan X. He says, act like the man you want to be. And I've been in some tough situations in my personal life where I literally have thought if I was writing a protagonist in my novel and I admired that protagonist and I wanted readers to admire him, what would, what would he do? And then I do that thing. Cause I know I'm not good enough to do that thing. Mm. Right. So, and, and for you to go, what you've given your boy now at three is a template for saying, it's not that you're perfect, that, that there's a, that you're maintaining an illusion of parental perfection, right? So a lot of the times when we talk about parents that are, uh, that have negative effect, it's from abuse or it's from neglect, right? There's another one, which is sort of like, um, the great, uh, worshiped patriarch on a pedestal. Everything I do is perfect. Of course, everything you do isn't perfect and you're setting an unreasonable template, so to give, to give your kid um, the skill to say things can happen that are scary and I'm going to show you how you come around, how you make it right, how you make it not scary is teaching him a little feedback loop. It's like a little mini hero's journey, both for you and for him. When you mm -hmm. talk about, when you talk about um, emulating, right? Doing, doing the thing with your kid that, that they, they do what dad does, not what dad says, and what you've taught him is things are scary. People can be scary and then it's okay. And there's a way to reconnect. And that's an option for me when I do that. Right. And it builds much more trust with you. And 
we're always going to screw up. There's no perfect thing. And if we're, if we think that we're going to, if you think you're never going to have another moment of temper or peaked ire in your life, good luck. Right. But what we can do is always seek to heal and repair and to emulate that. And so, yes, a lot of this with Evan, you know, but look, what's so fun about writing Evan, about writing a thriller series is it's like all the stuff we go through, but it's writ large. Right. So it's not just that he has a moment of, of temper. It's like he's, you know, he's just killed four cartel guys and he's, you know, he's going back to his place and gets dragged into a HOA meeting and he's bleeding through his sleeve trying to cover it. He's moving between the quotidian, the everyday parts of life and this other life and he's trying to integrate them. Um, right. So he's perfectly comfortable calculating the wind drift on a sniper round and gets like undone if he's by the mail slots and has to make small talk. Um, and in a way, that's what we're we're all sort of doing that. We have an interior life, I think, um, you know, as men uh, that that's that we're integrating with all these other needs and confusion. I said as men, as women, too, obviously, um, we, we all have some different template that we're integrating with the demands of everyday life. And that's not always easy, especially if you're doing something that requires drive and focus and muscularity, whether that means literal or intellectual or spiritual or moral. Well, and it seems like, and, you know, I don't want to give anything away. Well, I don't, I don't have any, any behind the scenes knowledge, but it seems like we're coming to a head here. So obviously Lone Wolf is number nine in the series of Orphan X, X, Roman numeral 10. There are 10, you know, rules or laws that he lives by. Uh, I mean, are we expecting a big shift with with the tenth novel, are we expecting some sort of you know consummation of a goal? Like where are we going to, or is it just Orphan X because it's Orphan X and I'm just reading into it? That's a, that's precisely correct. Okay, he's coming right. up on the ten. The ten will be of a piece. It's a decology. And again, I want to emphasize: you can pick up any one, and I reset for the reader. Mm. But it's it's a story. It's a grander story. And X is the cross point, right? X is X marks the spot and X is the point of no return for something. And so Lone Wolf is heading to that end. And, you know, a lot of times with the books, all the Orphan X books, it's very interesting. It's, it's in some ways, it's almost, um, I do something in the novels where I close the entirety of, of the story, I hope in satisfying fashion, that's the aim. And then I turn over one card for what's coming next. Hmm. And it's a cliffhanger of sorts, or it presages a conflict to come. And the end of Lone Wolf is the biggest card that I've ever turned over for what's going to come next in X. And by the way, my working title of the rough draft was X. So you're you're pretty perspicacious young man there, Kyle Thompson. All right. Well, I'm glad. And that makes me even more excited about what's to come. But it's that same feeling that gets people to wait until after the credits are rolling, you know, for their their favorite comic book movie, whether, whether it's, you know, Marvel or DC. It's because they're waiting for that little 30-second clip that turns over that next card. And so I'm very excited to, to see where that goes from here. But uh, as much as I enjoy your thrillers and going through those, perhaps my favorite work that you've done – uh, that I've been exposed to is what you did on the Exodus series uh, with Daily Wire and with your good buddy Jordan Peterson. Mm. And so I don't think I need to explain to my audience what that is because I've talked about it at, at length here. But you were part of a mm. roundtable discussion about the book of Exodus in the Pentateuch. And you were there with 
guys like Os Guinness, who's been on the show, but also Jonathan Pajo and Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro and James Orr and Stephen Blackwood. And just there was kind of a rotation of different people. And then you came on there and you were part of that group for a good number of, of those episodes. And I mean, guys, like if you haven't watched the series yet, it's some of the, the biggest minds in different areas of life going over small sections of Exodus at different points for an hour to an hour and a half and really digging into the questions that are beyond just the theology, but also the orthopraxy of how this is applicable to a modern life, to the historical uh, side of what's being uh, what's being discussed there as well. But for you, I guess back to the beginning, how did you become a part of the project? Uh, you know, what made you want to say yes when you were invited to be a part of this? And then the experience itself, let's, let's get behind the scenes. Well, Jordan called and invited me and it was, um, to be honest with you, Jordan and I have had a lot of adventures, right? We go back all the way. Jordan was my thesis advisor when I was an undergraduate. I mean, so he was the first person to introduce me to Carl Jung, who's sort of my, um, one of my, one of the lights in the firmament for me intellectually, or act, not just intellectually. Um, maybe we should start there. I was raised in a very secular uh, Jewish upbringing. Uh, I grew up in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, my parents, um, wonderful humanists. My dad's a as a as a wonderful physician. My mom's a social worker, and her life's work was bringing in adoptive kids from around the world. She placed three thousand kids from orphanages around the world into families in the Bay Area. So, wow. growing up for me, my house, my backyard was like the UN. I mean, we had kids of <laughs> every shape and size. You know, we'd have picnics with a flag for every country that the kids came from with the food and the toys and the art of that culture. So imagine multiculturalism in the best, most joyful way, right? Children, food, music, games. Um, and what was interesting when I was growing up is, I, A, I wasn't surrounded with a lot of Jews at all. It was a very um, Christian town. This was in Silicon Valley before .com, before it mm. diversified. A lot of dudes who look like, you know, those NASA launches where you have the white engineers with the yeah. horn rim glasses. It was like Hewlett Packard early days. Okay. Um, so my best friends were, you know, Christian, um, you know, it was, it was, it was very interesting. I was very out of place. And then my parents sent me to a Jesuit high school. Um, and I went kicking and screaming all boys, Jesuit high school. Not only um, was this, <laughs> not only was it religious, which I was not, it was an all boys school, which I was public school. I didn't know a single person. It was a school of 1200 guys. And I was the smallest kid in the entire high school. Oh man. I was five to 90 pounds as a freshman. So I went kicking and screaming long story short, wonderful school. Um, you know, there were priests teaching classes. I mean, this was as insane as if I, you know, shoved you into a, a synagogue, you know, in, it was just like, it, it didn't make any sense. Hmm. First year we read the old Testament. Jesuits are amazing. Jesuit education, man, they're spectacular. And the template, which really matched my parents' ethic, um, which was my school is called Bellarmine. It's in San Jose. It's a wonderful school. And the template was a man for others. They pounded that into our heads, right? Everything was, you do community service all four years. Mm. So I had um, a sort of opening into the match of these, I'm going to call it two worlds and it, of the secular and th let's call it the religious. These are very imperfect terms. 
Then I went to college. Um, almost all my roommates were Catholic. I went to school in Boston, like Irish, Italian. Mm. Um, and so, and then in college with, with Jordan, you know, he's teaching psychology and, and Jung for me was the entry point um, because Jung, um, master psychologist, he only wrote about narrative. Uh, everything he wrote about was mythology. It was alchemy, which if you think about with alchemy, you're turning base matter into gold, right? It's a hero's journey, but projected onto, um, you know, Materials. matter. Yeah. yeah, That's right. And he analyzed Shakespeare and he analyzed, of course, the Bible. And so it was a sort of intellectual and psychological way down to this reservoir of spiritual thinking. And so that was a kind of path that I took down to all of a sudden understand things that were in that nature and open up a kind of um, spiritual vocabulary that made sense to me. Meaning Jungian synchronicity was something that that made sense in a way. And a, and a, a number of my closest friends are born again Christian. One's a former 60 gunner in the, in the team, Navy SEAL. Uh, another one grew up the son of missionaries um, all through China. Um, and um, and so all of a sudden we started to have these um, conversations um, where we'd be going through something at the same time in our life. And I'd be like, oh, it's like Jungian synchronicity. And they'd have a description that was totally Christian and we'd put them on top of each other and they would match. So that's about where I was, which is not an incredibly sophisticated level. And Jordan called and asked me to do this seminar. And I literally said no two times because I was like, I don't, that's not a fit. We do so many other things we've done and other yeah. adventures. And he really wanted me, um, he was insistent, which I mean, not in a way that's that's flattering to me, but meaning I think he thought it would be important for me for myself and also to have a different kind of voice because everyone there is fairly devout. I mean, look, Prager, who I didn't know before this has written an entire book on every book of the Torah, right? You know, Ben Shapiro has the Torah essentially memorized. Then we have theologians from Cambridge. And so part of why Jordan, I think when he was building this and by the way, you know, uh, Blackwood and I were friends, Pajot and I were friends. So I had a lot of familiarity and warmth about some of the, some of the people who were there. Um, wound up having that with virtually everybody. I mean, or spectacular. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. But so for me, I was sort of went as a, I suppose, an expert in story, narrative structure and storytelling, um, which is a very different expertise. And I was really the only person I would say from this side, whatever sides mean anymore, which which is nothing, but we use them as an organizing way to talk about it. Mm. My tendency is probably center left. I'm more liberal. I'm high trade openness. And I was really the, the one person who was on that side of the divide. And so that was the point of entry. I kind of showed up and that experience for me was, was spectacular. It was life altering. So you said that Jordan thought it would be important for you. So well, he sounds- didn't say that he's too, he's too gracious <laughs> and smart. So he yeah. said, I'd really like you to come, but I, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, we involve each other. In a, in a lot of different adventures is probably the best way to say it. And he was like, pay attention to this one, you know? So and thank God he did. Obviously he wanted you to pay attention for a particular reason. Uh, as I understand it is your journey is not 
finished, uh, I get the sense that Jordan is putting together another crew uh, to tackle some other parts of the Bible as well. I keep asking you to tell me what book, and you just won't do it, Greg. You just won't do it, but I'll keep asking. Um, off air, of course. But has this experience put you on a journey of sorts? And some people, they use the term colloquially because it's like, oh, you're going to end up at, you know, at the foot of the cross. And that's like everything is an evangelical push, right? But for you, you came into this experience open-minded while a little bit demure, like, hey, I, I don't know if I should be here or not, where there's there's some inherent humility there. But you show up, you spend tens of hours recording, but also preparing and discussing. And I, I can only imagine what the dinner discussions were like afterwards. Oh, but, man. Uh, we had what? some epic, epic conversations. Well, if you, if you want to talk and about that, go for it. But I just want to know what what kind of journey has this done? Has this like altered your life in a particular area as it pertains specifically to the divine? Look, you you can't be around that much brilliance and pay attention and not be altered. I mean, I'd yeah. like to think that that's the engagement that we all have for each other because we come from different angles of it. I mean, it's really funny watching like you know, Pajot or Oz will have some, you know, respectful, different approach on something. But for me, look, I'm, I'm pretty high in trait openness. I don't have a hard time opening up to something that's brand new. I've gone undercover in a mind control cults to research stuff. I've spent a lot of time with a lot of different communities. And so once I was going, I went like full and open of heart, let's just say. And I didn't, I knew Ben enough to know him a bit personally and trust him. I'm, I'm friends with Andrew Clavin, mm-hmm. but Ben and Prager are fairly across the aisle, whatever, again, whatever the hell that means, you know, you can, you can pull a lot of things and I didn't know Prager very well. Um, and so one of the first things that was amazing was just, and we've done this. There was one time Jordan and I went to Congress. Gosh, this must've been 2018, I want to say, and just did a dinner. We had 10 um, Congress, Congress, Congress folk from the Democratic Party and 10 from the Republican Party. And we just had a dinner. And the rule was like no filibustering and no one talk about policy. Just say why you went, got into politics and what you care about. Went around the table, 20 people. If we haven't reached the peak of polarization, this was certainly one of them, right? So let's hope we haven't. And at the end of it, there were 20 of the finest people you could possibly imagine. Like you, you, nobody could possibly have an issue with anybody else when they told the story of what inspired them, what drove them, when we avoided the political. And I always think about that statistic, which I'm sure I'll misquote that we, you know, we have 99% of our DNA we share with chimps, right? But we look insane. So it's like, so with each other in America, in politics, what do you think we actually share between the parties? Is it 99.9999% aside from the radical fringes? And if we can start on the massive amount that we share before just focusing on what the differences are. And so one of the things about Exodus, there's a number of things that were just mind blowing for me, but one of them was, look, if you if you approach something in fellowship, right? Whether that's a seminar on Shakespeare, whether that's whether that's anything that you do, with people where everybody's in their best self, me included, this sort of bonding and understanding, not only that you can have over something, but that starts to to build in terms of feeling like the world's pulling together a little bit. It's quite extraordinary. 
Um, oh. And the fact that we didn't go in there to be like, look, we're going to spend 32 hours talking about trans bathrooms, right? Um, the fact that we, it was literally like, instead of finding the most obscure mosaic pieces of things we might disagree on, let's talk about something that everyone's bringing in a way their best purest self. So with me, it's not going to be the wisdom, the symbological wisdom of Pajot. It's not going to be the you know, the sweeping historical evangelical inside of Os Guinness, but it's, it's a, it's a genuine um, curiosity and openness and engagement with story and trying to link that to psychology. You're just in a conversation and it, you know, it calls to mind, they did a study on gangs um, where they were trying to figure out how to, you know, and a, a spate of gang violence. And they found if you take two gang members, you do an outward bound kind of thing and you just mess up the teams. It's like capture the flag, right? Like, what do you need to do? You need to be joined in another venture that's aiming upward. And we did that. And it was, it was amazing. And so my friendships with, with, I already, you know, I was, I was already, I would say probably closest with, with Pajot and Blackwood going in, but um, the friendships I had solidified more. And then there, there's, you know, enormous, enormous regard. And so when someone dismisses somebody else for a political position, even what I might consider an ill-advised um, partisan statement, and by that, I mean, I'm sure I've made plenty as well. There's a totality of a person that I'm looking at, right? And it's like, oh, you know, Prager said this thing in this time that someone's offended about, and it's like I, in a way, had access to his, um, you know, kind of capacious heart and childlike wonder and curiosity. You know, he has, you know, he knows as, as much about um, music. He could conduct an orchestra, probably. right? Yeah, I think he's done the, the Los Angeles County Symphony or something like that, where he'll go and conduct. Yeah. Well, what, yeah, who what he, it felt who does he like. Think he is? Yeah. Um, it's like, can you not be the, good at everything? That would be awesome. But what it's like, the other thing that. Go ahead, please. Well, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, and one of the things that, that also was so very interesting was I had one conversation with Oz. I, Oz is, I mean, you know, you've interviewed him. What do you mm -hmm. say about Oz? He's like, he's who you want an evangelical to be. He's like beaming with goodwill. He's I want awesome. to create like an action, an action series featuring Oz Guinness <laughs> with like goodwill and a machete in the Amazon, right? Yeah. Like, and you're just following him. I'm in. He's amazing. But he, um, we had this conversation, we were talking about globalization. And so you have to think about where people come from. And for me, I come from, think back to my backyard with kids from all the countries of the world, you know, who would have basically like died impoverished or been turned out for prostitution and orphanages who were like integrated in these communities. And sometimes, um, it was, a, it was a very global childhood that, that was part of my mom specifically, but my parents guiding ethos. So globalism for me meant like, great, man, the best of a bunch of cultures, um, right? Free trade. We lift half the world out of poverty. I can get an iPhone for, you know, instead of it being $5,000, like I can, I can get one for a thousand dollars and other people are making money in other areas. And, you know, we're stitched tighter. We can travel across Europe without passports. I'm coming in from a, from a, a different angle, right? And, if somebody comes at me with, you know, all the judgments that 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 adhere to that, I'm just going to solidify, right? It turns into boxing, not judo. 
it's not combative. That's not quite what I mean. But so I was talking to Oz and Oz sort of explained with his, with his tone of sort of hushed reverence and wonder and ceaseless good nature. Like he described for me what a global ethic looks like. Right. And then, you know, like, do we out? And I've been thinking a lot about, um, about sort of technology and polarization. I wrote a comic book series called new think, which in which I, I examine a lot of these things, but I had this conversation with him and it sort of just connected me with the other stuff that I had studied and the other ideas I'd integrated like Orwell, like, right. And for some reason it just hadn't been framed that way. And Oz was describing the side of globalism. It doesn't mean that globalism, we need to have a view of like the emperor's thumbs up or thumbs down, Mm. but an awareness that if we sort of outsource everything to a more global ethic, once that bleeds away from, um, local communities, local wisdom, ground truth, right? We start to lose and then you have the centralized control. The rest becomes quite obvious to someone who's conservative or libertarian minded. But for some reason, there was just like a connection on it for me. And I already knew it in so many ways. I knew it from, you know, um, Orwell. I knew it from Arthur Miller, the crucible. I knew it from working in communities, um, both liberal and conservative, let's say, right? If you go into a broke community in in Western Tennessee that's opioid ravished, if you go into a community that's a rural community in Chicago and you're assessing the needs, you have to know what's happening on the ground, obviously. You can't have things top down. And so it just really opened up a bridge. I always think of things, um, you know, my, my a key symbol for me is the yin-yang. And one of the things I always say is based on my experience my genetic traits, my meaning my big five personality traits, my upbringing, I, I come at everything from a from a liberal, open, center left perspective. But if I, whenever I can get enough wisdom and talk to enough people, I find that on whatever issue I come almost where I'm half conservative and half liberal. And I think if I was wiser, I'd be that way on sort of every issue. And so, in talking to Oz about this and having him frame it. Um, you know, so delightfully after trust had obviously been established in a host of other ways with conversational exchanges and engagement, it, it just really opened that up to me starting to have an understanding. I do a lot of, a good amount of pro bono work in the political space against polarization or outreach, but it was like one of these things where you get an insight like that, which to you, perhaps that connection's obvious, but where all these, the epiphany slots, all these things in place, right? Like literature, ethic, philosophy, but then it becomes this, this, this wonderful new filter that I can pick up and look at everything with. And so if I'm talking to democratic leaders, I can think about it differently. If I'm talking to community organizers, if I'm talking to conservatives, right, um, it just becomes something that is, it's like this tool that you can have way more insight. And if the interest is trying to find truth, if the interest is trying to move towards an understanding that can, that can bring people together in, in the clearest way, then it was rife with that, Kyle. I mean, we could talk for six hours um, about a lo- an offhand line that Ben Shapiro said between, you know, takes on something where like a throwaway line from him that, you know, I'd spent enough time with him to not be, you know, engaged on some partisan nonsense to go, wow. Okay. Like, you know, clearly, clearly Ben's got a big, you know, interior cingulate. He's got a big engine. He's got bright headlights, 
But some of the throwaway stuff when we're applied to something is I have an opportunity to pick it up and, and think and carry it through and contemplate on it. And it's not engaging with the tweet where I've a priori decided that I don't agree with it and it's not phrased the right way and we could disagree and can he see this other side? So, you know, it's like I said, we could talk about this for hours, but. Well, we're certainly going to talk more about it. Uh, we don't, we're running out of time in terms of today, but I can say that as I was listening to it and watching the series, it seemed like it was a room full of people that were focused on human flourishing uh, everybody has their own opinion as to how we accomplish that in the best way possible for humanity in total. That's part of what ARC is, and that's part of what some of the other work that y'all are doing is. But also, it seemed like every it's one of those few times where you got to witness everybody in a room whose sword was very, very sharp. Now, people's, hmm. you know, th their swords were, you know, uh, different makes and models and, and all kinds of different things. And their swords are wielded in different ways, depending upon the chosen profession. But that was one thing to where it's like, man, everyone here is sharp. And it, and it didn't turn into a dick measuring contest where it's just like, Hey, let's see who's the sharpest tack this, this game around. There was so much defaulting to everybody else and allowing everybody else to kind of have their, their moment to say what they needed to say. There wasn't a whole lot of divisiveness. And, you know, for a guy like me, I'm very high in trade conscientiousness, but I'm also very high in trade openness, which is not a super. That's my favorite combination, Kyle. <laughs> well, it's, it doesn't make sense to me, but again, I don't know the psychology behind it, but that's one thing for me is I felt like I was in tension the entire time between the conscientiousness part of my personality, and the openness part of my personality, mm. because sometimes I was wanting to shut the conversation down and say, no, stamp it, move on. We've made the point. And other times it was like, I think they need to explore this for a little bit longer. But as per usual, every time we get to the end of the conversation, there's more that needs to be said. But as we wrap up, I'll just kind of throw out a generic final question, which is what what are you most excited about that you have uh, coming up, right? So whether that be uh, something that you're writing, something that you're working on, which you know might be the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship or might be the next uh, biblical thing that you take on with Jordan or some project that you haven't told anyone about. What's that thing that's like really getting you going that you're excited about? Oh, that's a great question. I want to just have a quick remark uh, to bring something full circle yeah, that sure. we talked about. You know, you told that kind of poignant anecdote about you and your three-year-old and it ties to the thing you, you kind of raised in your first question or your, you know, in the early part of the conversation where you said that what's embodied, what, what you do as a dad is more important than what you say. Mm. And in a way, so much of what happened in Exodus that is, I think more important even than the ideas that are discussed and the intellectual, the intellectualism, the insight, the, even the wisdom that was passed is, as you said, it didn't turn into a sword measuring contest, which was important. But I think in some ways it's watching everybody who was there. It was authentic. There wasn't a false note. There was no engagement with somebody who was possessed by an ideology of one side or another. And I think the thing for me that was the most um, meaningful was watching everybody who was um, the manner in which we were engaged and what we hope that that is showing a template for people who might disagree, right? We come from, everyone comes from different disciplines. You know, it's not just me and everyone else, you know, there's plenty of um, different approaches to this matter from everyone at the table. But watching and understanding that we can pick up ideas uh, and notions that are deeply meaningful and have um, 
you know, around which we've all built our respective worldviews and just share them openly in a spirit of exploration and adventure and chisel down and even argue and negotiate and compromise and bridge build and find connections. The mode of that, it was in hindsight, I think in some ways is the most important thing is just is even if you, if we changed, I mean, the, the content of course is essential, but, but the means by which we engage with it in some ways I think was, was the most meaningful part for me. And to your last question, I'm, I am enjoying, it's hard to describe how much I'm enjoying writing Orphan X right now. Mm. Um, it's like, it's this weird thing where I've caught up to what I'm writing and I'm thinking every night about what's next and I'm writing it and I'm figuring out from what I'm writing things I'm trying to fix in my own life. It's been this really weird confluence. Um, and the book comes out, you know, in two weeks and I, I'm going to go on tour and tours are great, man. Uh, I get to meet a lot of people. I meet more and more people who come in from Exodus, from your podcast, from, you know, obviously books, Hollywood, the comics that I've written, but a real range. And so what's been a, what's been a total blast. And I got to see you last year at one of the events, which was really fun is watching and having, having these sort of like little um, communities that gather around a shared story at these stops. Um, and I get to do that again in two weeks, you know, and I can't wait. I'm going to, you know, Houston, I'll be all over California, Sacramento, Bay area, LA, Orange County, St. Louis, I'm going to go to, I'm going to Scottsdale. I'm doing something in uh, Des Moines at one point. And that's going to be amazing because the creative has been so engaging. And now I get to kind of go talk, talk about it with people. Um, and I can't wait to do that. And maybe we could even figure out, I could, I could grab you again somewhere, somewhere else at some point. And, um, you know, we could get together and eat beef jerky and drink bourbon. Oh no, that's, that's not what we're doing. No, that's not what we're doing. No, we're going to eat, drink, eat, you know, jerky, drink bourbon and smoke cigars. We're going to do all of those things. But I will say when I was with you oh, on your last tour in Dallas, one thing that I did because, you know, I, I have a, a bigger personality. And so sometimes I can be the center of attention and life of the party. I loved being able to sit in the back of the bookstore and watch you interact with people that have interacted with you so much through your writing and through your work and not just to see how much it means to them, but for them to be able to talk to their favorite author and ask that burning question that has been on the front of their brain for months. And then they finally get to see you and then they just get to lay it out there. And you so graciously gave your time to everybody and, and attention because a lot of these things turn into, okay, I'll sign it. Yeah. I'll take your stupid picture and I'll get the hell out of the line. But you were actually investing in these people because you knew you had a nugget of time with them and you wanted to make sure it was worth it. So that was fun for me just to be, you know, a fly on the mm -hmm. wall and get to be able to interact and see that in a lot of ways. But Greg, you always have an open invitation every time you release something awesome to come back on the show, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, man. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's always nice to talk to you. All right. We'll talk again soon. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Greg Hurwitz. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Got a couple links for you today. I've got a link to the Amazon link for you to go and buy your own copy of Lone Wolf. And then I've also got a link to Greg's website. So I went specifically to the events page. So if you want to catch him on his tour as he's going across some places in the Midwest and out on the West Coast, you can also check that out there.
Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetual which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>